for a relatively liberal nation, if you look around, it looks like we're very open about sex. But if you actually listen to what we're prepared to talk about to one another, I'm not so sure that we are. It's our responsibility to give these young people all of the information they might need to be able to make those choices for themselves as a responsible and informed adult. Refreshingly real, refreshingly honest, refreshingly human—a podcast about human connections, shared experiences, and finding that line of humanity. With your host, Hannah Pillow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Refreshingly Human, or hi, if you or welcome if you're here for the first time. Today, I am speaking to Martin, who is a teacher based in the UK. So, hi, Martin. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Hi, Hannah. How are you? Pretty good, thank you.、Um, crazy week. It's it's only Tuesday, but it feels like such a long week. <laughs> yeah, that's pandemicitis, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. So, Martin, how long have you been teaching? Oh, just about eight years or so, give or take a few months. It's been quite a long time, and I spent something around the region of about three years in education in like a support role before that. So it's about eleven or twelve years in school. And I think like education itself is a whole other topic. Like we could have an entire season just about education. And <laughs> I'm sure we could. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting. Um, but yeah, I had、um, wanted to speak to Martin, especially because、um, we've been speaking to so many people about their own experiences with,、um, you know, getting to learn about sex and how they had to figure out a lot of things for themselves,、um, and what they wish they were told or thought growing up. So we all kind of were like, we have no idea what's going on in schools right now. Like <laughs> we've been out of the schooling system for so long, no idea what's what's what there. But I want to rewind a little bit for you.、Um, can you like give us a sense of maybe roughly, roughly how old you are, and <laughs> what sex ed was like when you were a kid? So when I was at school, I was at primary school in the the beginning from the beginning of the nineties right the way up until the mid nineties, and then secondary school from the mid nineties till the turn of the millennium. So that kind of dates me a little bit, gives you a bit of an idea. How so I'm、be. thinking like Jennifer Lopez era, Britney Spears era. Okay, sure. So that would have been kind of popular music by the time I was kind of leaving high school, starting to go to sixth form college. Yeah, so that would have been about right. Um, so my experience of schooling is a completely different experience of schooling compared to what modern day children are used to. It was a completely different education system then, really. So sex education for me when I was growing up was kind of very brief and very perfunctory. There was not very much information to be had anywhere. So at primary school, I, I remember. A talk about puberty and about physical changes that you know children experience as they they become like older children or young teens, and I remember that being delivered by some kind of community nurse. I think it must have been. It certainly wasn't the, the regular teacher. It was somebody whose remit was to deliver that education, 
And then I remember being segregated into boys and girls shortly after that. And girls were taken for what I presume must have been the conversation about menstruation and, you know, how to manage that as, you know, a child really experiencing it for the first time. And that was it as far as primary school went. So this was aged 11. So I would have said that might have been a little bit on the late side, particularly for some of the girls, you know, Mm. talking about menstruation and development. And then sex education in terms of the mechanics of what sex itself was, was delivered at secondary school. That must have been, I mean, I don't remember the exact year grouping correctly, but I, I feel like it was about year eight or year nine. So that would place me at about 12 or 13 years old, possibly 14 at a push. And that was delivered not necessarily as a standalone session, but that was a biology lesson, essentially. That was the objective was to understand you know, the human reproductive system. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was it. It was very dry. There was, there was <laughs> kind of no contextualizing. There was no kind of pastoral support to go along with it. Mm-hmm. Now, there may have been some conversations in form sessions that I'm neglecting to remember, but that kind of gives you a bit of a picture as to what kind of impact and how well delivered they must have been if I'm failing to remember it. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Knowing I needed to conjure it to memory for this <laughs> second. So they certainly made no lasting impression if we had them. And I would I would like to say I don't think they happened because I have a I would say I generally have a good memory. So I, I think that was it. I think it was literally the the scientific objective really of understanding, you know, how how, you know, cells divide and where you know sperm comes from and Mm. the journey to over and the rest of it really and I don't really remember any conversation particularly about safe sex either now I should point out I went to a boys secondary school so I think given it was the mid to late 90s they probably were on the cusp of being able to get away with not really saying very much because they would have assumed you know opportunities for for the pupils that they were teaching to you know be in a position where they might find themselves needing to have that information were quite limited I suppose compared to uh, a co-educational school so I do think that perhaps they had it easy in the sense that they felt they didn't actually need to really give us that pastoral support because where were we going to encounter the girls that you know (laughs) potentially they might want to educate us about relationships with so yeah it was it was rather lacking shall we say I mean (laughs) that's rather that's interesting because um I think a lot of people could relate to your own experience of what sex ed was back in the day um and it it was similar for me. I went to a girls' school as well, but I think that the reason we didn't get any other support except for the black and white um, sex, um, you know, biological part of it was mm-hmm. because I also went to a very religious school as well. And uh, the only other information we would get about sex is that it's only between a man and a wife. It's a it's a very pure thing. It's made for reproduction. Those were the messages we would get about sex um, in my own school. Mm-hmm. Were you in a religious school or was just... No, I mean, it was vaguely related to kind of Christian values that would come through a kind of Church of England sort of style of values. You know, there was there was daily worship, but it was tokenistic, really. And that's mm-hmm. probably about as far as religion and its influence on sort of the the values of the school and the culture of the school when it wasn't I mean I would say for the time it was probably an archetypal example of a school that was not very religious okay interesting and yeah I think I I just like there's so much to unpack there because like in in your sex ed, ed they thought about the man and the woman and the reproductive side of sex but 
I mean, you yourself are homosexual as well, so you didn't get any education around that growing up? No, there was no conversation around LGBT plus issues at all, really. And there was kind of, there was no even intimation that sex might even be a recreational thing. You know, it was very much a, it's for a biological purpose mm -hmm. to, you know, progeny to be spawned, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Reproductive purposes only. There was no conversation around that. Yeah. And I think I mean that that sort of, set many people up with lots of future potential issues i mean luckily things are a little different now and we'll come on to that won't we soon but yeah no for sure i mean it does it's it brings about so many questions um because i mean now we're living in a society where we are given well we, we actually have that choice do we want to have kids is it something i want to do in my life because i know like in my in my past well in my past like in the past generation of women in my own family, they didn't actually have a choice if they wanted to have kids or not. You know, it was just mm. expected of them and they had to do it. It um, was an assumption. Yeah, it wasn't an option. And nowadays we have, it's it's an option. We we can say, I don't want kids. It, it, it might still be stigmatized. You know, we, we might still be getting rid of that stigma, but people are standing up and saying, hey, kids are not for me. And it's... So what? It's not a big deal. It's actually even better for the environment. So good for you. <laughs> precisely. <laughs> precisely. I, I heard something on the radio today talking about um, a, a new green deal in South Korea and the South Korean government advocating this policy, you know, not not strictly saying don't have children or adopt. They weren't adopting a China style, you know, one child only policy that oh, they God. used to have. But they were sort of suggesting that perhaps if you wanted to be more socially responsible, it might be better to have fewer children. And they were talking about the fact that the birth rate in developed nations had dropped during the pandemic and sort of green movements are quite quietly pleased about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a whole other topic to go into for sure. And, and um, yeah, I, I just think that it, there was so much of things lacking back then in the ed education system. You know, now sex is not I think people know sex is not just about having kids and it's quite widely spoken about. Um, and I think, I don't know, but I think growing up, there were a lot of mixed messages about sex because in schools and from the parents, we were told that sex is purely reprodu for reproduction or, you know, for, for me personally, that it's only between a man and a wife. But then you'd see a lot of mixed messages in the media because you'd see a lot of sexy things. You'd be see a lot of... Um, fun elements to sex on the t on on in just in a movie you don't even have to go to porn but just in a movie you'd see like fun elements to sex that look appealing and i think those mixed messages could be very confusing for people growing up well it's interesting you say that because i kind my recollection of you know the way that sex and sexual relationships were depicted in the media as a young person you know kind of like a sub 10 year old was that there wasn't very much depiction of it actually and because you know when I was growing up it was between like the mid 80s to the mid 90s this time period of being zero to ten so you know there wasn't a proliferation of media in the way there was now you had television four channels probably not <laughs> probably not satellite or cable up until a certain point wasn't even available internet wasn't a thing um videos you know vcr players were kind of the only sort of home entertainment system aside from console games and and then of course there was print media so that was that was all you had access to so as as a young person back then 
there was not this proliferation of sexual imagery. There was not really any portrayal of sex. And if there was, it was perhaps it was in a soap or it was in a drama series or, you, you know, maybe it was a film, maybe it was intimated that, you know, some kind of sexual congress had taken place, that there was a sexual relationship. But you were normally kind of almost um, cloistered, really. You were you were chaperoned by a parent who determined whether or, whether or not that was Close appropriate. Close your eyes, stay kissing. Oh, yeah, or, or it had been pre-selected or, you know, the, the, it was understood that that show perhaps had an appropriate level of explicit mm-hmm. content for the time and, the you know, the potential audience. So I do think nowadays children are going to get far more mixed messages because if you are told that, you know, sex is just for reproductive function, you've immediately got, television you know i mean shows like i don't celebrity love island love island i mean big brother first dates anything that's kind of got a vaguely romantic connotation before you look at any other kind of you know scripted shows um has huge depictions of sex and if it's not necessarily depictions of sex there's so much kind of presentation of you know personal look and appearance or Mm. behavior that kind of infers that there's a a sexual nature to it you know it's that's a choice that's been made for that reason and you don't need to look very much further than that before you can see those kinds of images on social media or in print if anybody's still bothering with print or youtube for example you know there are so many other role models so many other places children can look to get their messages to kind of understand the world and society around them particularly in terms of you know sexual relationships the way we choose to present ourselves and I, I feel like the education system is playing catch up with that at the moment and yeah there are steps being taken to catch up but it's a pretty big gulf between you know where where the curriculum contents and sort of schools responsibilities were deemed to be and where they want to go there's a pretty big gulf between that and the the objective and then also kind of society and children's experiences in general I think it's been something that's been neglected for quite a long time and I'm I'm glad that it's being addressed although there's quite a lot of work to do (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure um yeah I mean I just want to backtrack a little bit there so uh I was actually born in the late 80s and I think mm-hmm. that for me I was brought up with a lot more media than maybe you were. So mm-hmm. uh, and I, but I like what you said back there about seeing it in the soaps because I can there's a very distinct memory and I think it was probably one of the first times I realized that sex was not just about having babies because I can mm-hmm. oh, this memory always comes back to me and it was from a very silly soap days of our lives we all know that oh, one right. yeah <laughs> and, mm. and i just always remember that samantha whenever she and can't remember what her boyfriend's name was i just remember her name but whenever her she and her boyfriend used to have sex she used to always want chocolate ice cream afterwards <laughs> i always thought that was that must be so cool <laughs> so, Certainly yeah. an incentive to want to try it, right? For a curious Definitely. Mind. <laughs> like, if I want chocolate ice cream after sex, it must be good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let, let's fast forward then. So you, you said that there's things happening to play catch up. And yeah, of course, there's so much we have to catch up with right now. Um, what exactly is happening? What's going on in the education system right now? What steps so, have, have they been yeah. taken? So the government produced a piece of guidance that it, isn't statutory until September I think I'm right with that but 
basically it is a curriculum that well it, it's not a curriculum it's a set of outcomes that young people need to have achieved at different stages in their education so there are some that are earmarked as having to have been taught and delivered before the end of primary and some that are intended to be taught before the end of the secondary phase of education now the primary ones completely issued the actual mechanics of sex sexual relationships in a direct manner so in the primary content, you're looking at things like what healthy relationships are. Now, that could be a relationship between friends. It could be a relationship between kind of boyfriends and girlfriends without alluding to it directly. It can be relationships between parents, families, you know, just what an appropriate relationship is, what beginning to go into kind of what an exploitative relationship looks like. Okay. Now, for me, my issue with it is I think it's too late to leave that proper conversation about what an exploitative relationship looks like what an inappropriate relationship looks like I think it's too late to leave it till secondary school when you're actually being explicit about what you really mean by yeah. that because you know we, I mean we do want children to have well-developed social skills and you know to know if a friend's a bad friend that's important of course but thinking about their own vulnerability it's children are kind of they, they become well they we already know from psychology that children are sexual creatures anyway we just don't like to think of them as that because it seems inappropriate to us as adults but they're becoming more sexualized or at least more switched on to sexualization from a much younger age primarily because of the media they're exposed to now so I, I kind of feel like it's too late to wait until they're 11 or 12 to sort of talk about you need to be careful about how you present yourself you know do you want to be perceived in a certain way? Presenting yourself in one way can lead to another consequence that you don't realise. I mean, I think back to this, this example I'll give of trying to take photographs for a, a wall display of my class about four or five years ago. And it was, a, it was an early years class, so that age puts the children at an age between four and five years old. And most of the children were happy just to kind of like stand against a wall, do a cute sort of smile, and I'd take the photograph for our birthdays display. And this one child a little girl would not accept that pose as a photograph she wanted to kind of do that you know drop the shoulder turn pout look down and oh, I just wow. kind of said how old was she she was four and some months I don't quite remember but she was less than five and I, I, I said you know we don't you don't need to do that it's we're just taking a nice photo so we can you know see our faces when we come into the classroom and we know when our birthdays are and we can use it to learn different things she was like, no, I, re I really need it to be like this. This is how mummy does it. And I remember thinking, well, that's the beginning of that journey for some children. Now, she's been exposed to that kind of Instagram, kind of like, you know, no judgment here, but lip filler, you know, eyebrows in the particular shape, perhaps some cosmetic procedures, perhaps not wearing very many clothes. She's been exposed to that kind of like sexualization of women. And she's kind of taken that on board as being the norm, something that she wants to aspire to, which on the one hand is problematic, I feel, because it possibly isn't appropriate for a four-year-old to want to kind of kind of present themselves in that way to the world. But on the other hand, it's what a lot of children will be seeing and be interested in pursuing because all of their role models in the media, well, not all, but a lot of the role models they'll be observing in the media will will have that presentation and I think that it's all very well and good saying we don't need to teach children to um to be aware of that until a later point but it's already too late for some children like mm. some children at age six seven eight nine they're already kind of invested in that kind of pre-sexual 
kind of free sexual behavior in the sense that they're, they're making those presentational choices, those behavioral choices without necessarily having contextualized it or having the knowledge that it, the one relates to the other. And yeah. I think, well, so, allowing the children to be in a vulnerable position by not kind of t having that conversation. Yeah. So just to clarify, you mean that in primary school, they also been thought about like an appropriate and inappropriate relationship. So like in, so I definitely agree that that's too late because we know that a lot of sexual abuse happens to children from a much younger age and they should be, you know, being, I mean, parents tell, tell the kids nowadays from a younger age, you know, that no one should be touching you here, this shouldn't be yeah. happening. So definitely they need this. Well, this... That is that is taught, I should add, that, we, that, that okay. is taught from a very young age that, you okay. know, like, there's a private zone that shouldn't be touched. <laughs> but my kind of it's a different kind of vulnerability to me that's teaching you that this is what being a victim is and don't accept that this isn't acceptable uh -huh. for somebody to you know approach you and touch you in this manner but we're not sort of saying that it's not okay to go on instagram and post pouncing photos of yourself age 10 when a you shouldn't be on instagram and b that's not appropriate and c you might look older and d you don't know who's looking Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's, that's uh, and the that's vulnerability what... I'm talking about uh... and that, that is left until much too late right now, got you schools are free to interpret the guidance how they want to there are bare minimums that are meant to be taught that's kind of the legal the legal guidance as, as to what must be covered but it's really up to schools as to how far they want to take that mm -hmm. so for me I, I feel that some schools won't take it as far as they should do because it's controversial mm -hmm. for one and it potentially causes issues with parents the relationship between school and and parents but also it's really uncomfortable content to be delivering and then there's this whole quandary of if we start to talk about this that's relevant to four or five of these children are we then sort of well and i don't necessarily believe this is true but are we almost glamorizing it or elevating it to children who are completely unaware of that you know that that child who uses the ipad to play a horse game or something and never even goes on social media oh, yeah. I, I don't think i don't believe that you promote bad behaviors by talking about them personally but if you are potentially going to be accused of kind of making young minds inquisitive about things that might not be appropriate for their age then certainly there's an argument that somebody could make implies that schools might be part of the problem if they talk about these issues at too young of an age so I think there's a really fine balancing act mm -hmm. to be achieved now lots of schools at this point will have a pastoral support worker who perhaps if adults in or around the school workforce are noticing some kind of behavior or presentation about a specific child that person that pastoral support worker hopefully if they're skilled enough to do this sensitively would be able to do some kind of intervention with that child just for their benefit without having to expose a full class to it. But I do still think it it's worthwhile in it's worthwhile to rather to teach children that you can make yourself vulnerable through choices you make, particularly online. And I, we, we do teach it, but we, we kind of skirt around that kind of sexual mm -hmm. exploitation thing. And it's really hard to know how to do that right. But, you know, a 10 year old boy or a 10 year old girl is essentially the same as or has the same opportunities an 18 year old might have had at this point, perhaps not in the physical world, but certainly in the uh, mm. online arena. And that's, that's what worries me about leaving kind of that 
discussion of sexual relationships until a later point. Now, mm. primary schools can teach the, the mechanics of sexual reproduction, mostly in, it's meant to be in a scientific context if they do, that's the intention. But some you know, schools are free to develop their own policies that go further. Of course, the government guidance says those policies should be crafted with kind of community input, so parental input, ideally. Um, but I know a lot of schools are going to be reluctant to do that, especially if they don't legally have to, mm. because it's just such a powder keg, really. Mm. Because, I mean, for a relatively liberal nation, if you look around, it looks like we're very open about sex. But if you actually listen to what we're prepared to talk about to one another, I'm not so sure that we are. I just want to interrupt you listening for a brief second just to remind you to check out my social media pages. I'm on Instagram as Refreshingly Human Podcast and Facebook as Refreshingly Human. You can also check me out on LinkedIn as Hannah Pillow. And if you are enjoying the episode, please don't forget to take a screenshot of yourself listening to the episode and share it on your own social media. Don't forget to tag me so I can see that love for Refreshingly Human. Now I'll let you get back to the episode. Like we're quite happy for our children to watch Love Island or see the kind of imagery they're seeing on Facebook, well, not so much Facebook, perhaps, but Instagram and other websites. But we don't really talk about it. We don't say, you know, well, this person looks like that because, or this is an example of an unhealthy sexual relationship, or, you know, we don't have those open conversations, mm. I feel, as parents with our children or as, you know, as educators with children, because it's still sort of taboo I think we're happy to talk around the edges of it but not directly and I think children really need that kind of direct modeling Mm. so I do think there are some issues now secondary is a whole different arena really at secondary they can teach those and must teach those kinds of understandings between the ages of 11 and 16 so I think that's where most of the important work is being done in terms of explaining you know sex as a recreational act safe sex you know not being vulnerable to exploitation knowing what sexual exploitation looks like but my other issue with that is how well is that taught now at primary school your teacher is a generalist they teach everything to you your teacher is you know the person who delivers all of the content you ever learn in almost every case anyway but at secondary school there are specialist subject teachers now i question who's done the training to deliver that Mm. if they have done the training how well has that training been delivered if their main you know their main contractual obligation is to deliver a history lesson to these groups x times a week and maybe i don't know a politics or a philosophy lesson or whatever the secondary subject is how much headspace how much time how much planning space do they have to deliver that what resources do they have as a school if it's not a department it's probably not as well resourced as a maths department or a history department Mm. or a physics department might be so I do have to wonder about how invested schools are in the whole architecture of it now I can't really speak from the perspective of a secondary teacher because I'm not on although I do have a fairly close friend who is a secondary teacher so I have some understanding of what it looks like in her setting so yes it there is there is a lot more going on it's at the kind of early phase of development at the moment in that the government have decided and the committees have decided what good practice looks like, but there's still a lot to be done to implement it well. And 
how accountable schools will be for what they do, I don't know, because I can't see at the moment that it's something that bodies like Ofsted or local authorities are looking at particularly closely. Mm. It's it's rather complicated, isn't it? Um, because I'm just thinking like it's on the one hand, it's a very positive thing that they are introducing that even if it's so vaguely right now, at least it's a step in the right direction. On the other hand, it's kind of like we should have been doing this a long fucking time ago. It's really, yeah. really late to. And like you said, there's so much we need to catch up on now. Um, but I think that the, the other problem, and you already mentioned this, we have a lot of close communities. So it's uh, like you said, the, the British community um, as a whole can be quite closed. But within the British community, there's also a whole lot of other cultures who have their own religious beliefs, their own idea ideologies about sex. And like you said, it's going to be very sensitive for schools to be able to cater to everyone while right. while doing justice to the child, because that's the most important thing, right? We want to do justice to the child at the end of the day. I know I've worked in a school before and the schools that are more focused on the children than they are on the parents, um, we get amazing results. I mean, it, it can be equal parts parents are extremely helpful and equal parts parents might be inhibiting factors to their child's development. Yeah. Oh, sometimes. no, that's true. That's true. But... We do have some amazing parents, but um, I know that there were just some who... A lot, like, I guess it depended on the school that I worked in, because I know there was this one school that I worked in where we actually had to alter the grades because the parents would be unhappy and they wouldn't give the money to the school. And that was just not yeah. doing the kid any justice. I mean, sometimes that's kind of the issue in creating this kind of um, marketized economy around schools. I mean, most schools in the UK are state schools, so parents aren't directly paying for their mm. children's education, but there's certainly been a drive towards seeing children parents who are using the public service as a service user rather than a benefactor of the service so everybody kind of has got this entrenched language of market structures there so everybody sees themselves as sort of paying your salary or having a right to a voice and I do think people do have a right to to a voice yeah. in how the public services are shaped but it's really difficult to be subjective uh, rather not subjective to be objective about that as a parent whose child is going to a school because that child's your world and you know yeah, so important exactly. to that... expect how do you have objectivity and how education should be delivered to yeah. a child when I mean, it's your true. child and your that... child's education yeah that's true exactly that the the child is you know you're giving your well what you know, people would describe as their heart to someone else to look after for the day. So that's exactly. very invested in what happens at the school. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a difficult one to balance uh, because I think that this kind of education, while it comes from the school, it also needs to come from the parents as well. It does. That's a reason why it's important that when schools put these policies together, they're taken, you know, alongside the views of the community that you bring the parents the guardians, the carers along with the school because what you don't want to do is be in a position where your school policy is what you feel it should be. You think it's brilliant in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, educating children, protecting them from being vulnerable. It has all the outcomes you'd want them to, to achieve as, you know, young people entering the world. And yet on the other hand, having 
parents who are up in arms about how explicit it is or the content that's in it that they don't think is appropriate because they either they don't understand because they're from a different generation or they're from a different culture or they just don't like the thought of their child hearing it at those age ranges. So it's really mm. important that you do bring the community along in this kind of personal relationship, sexual education area of, of teaching and learning. And it's just a real minefield. And like you say, having the parents involved in that process is key, really, because it's not just the job of a school to educate a child about the wider world. It's part of our job, but it's also a huge parental responsibility Mm -hmm. to do that same thing. And I like to think that really schools teaching this is a safety net this is for the children who don't have that role model at home who is going to be reliably able to help them navigate this complex world of relationships and online relationships as mm. they grow older if, if you don't have that role model at home then yes school should be the the institution the place where that slack is picked up but I don't think it should be the primary deliverer of this content I I think what we do should augment what happens at home agreed yeah I mean it would be like in a perfect world if the parents and teachers could work hand in hand to come up with the best solution to this (laughs) you know but um we do live in a world full of diversity and difference absolutely and um yeah I think that's always going to be there the the thing is though um, at the end of the day, like I know from my experience, I was brought up in a very religious family and I had been taught very um, specific things about sex from my culture and my religion. But when I grew up, I decided I, I could decide what I wanted and what I didn't want to accept from what I was taught growing up. So right. at the you end could of select the... your own lessons, right? Right, exactly. So at the end of the day, the child is going to decide for themselves what is right for them and what is not. Not the child, but the grown-up child. Yeah, (laughs) precisely. The individual. Um, The individual. So I think like if we can get some of the spaces covered um, of the important things and we can cover some of it um, in the early foundations, that is good. But at the end of the day, I think that the child's going to grow up to be an individual and make these decisions for themselves. Absolutely. And it's our job as a society, whether or not you're an educator or a parent or whatever your role in the upbringing of a child is, whether it's distant or direct, it's our responsibility to give these young people all of the information they might need to be able to make those choices for themselves as a responsible and informed adult. I love um, that. that. That's been the problem in policy for a long time, but I do think we're on the right track. It's just quite some distance before we reach the destination we really want. Yeah. Now, I love that. I love giving all the information, but I just I just know that there's so many cultural parts of that that are going to hinder giving Absolutely. them all the information, which is, it's, it's a problem. <laughs> I mean, the fact that there are those, you know, parental concerns, social, cultural differentials that create problems just shows how thorny a subject it is. And the fact that, parents can kind of opt out of some of this that parents can protest about it that parents can shape schools policy on the one hand it's a really beneficial thing but on the other hand it does show that it's not really clear who has ownership of this content is it for schools to decide is it for parents to decide is it some middle way where we do it together I don't think that in most cases schools are particular and they'll say they are 
but they're not. They're, most schools are set up to deliver that kind of third middle way. You know, I, in my opinion, I kind of feel like schools and parents should work together. And the people who are teaching this, it, it might be better in some cases, especially when we're talking about older children at secondary, if the people that are delivering this content about being vulnerable or about sexualized behaviors or about what healthy relationships look like or abusive relationships, might actually help if some of the people that teach this are people who've had experience of the negative consequence of not knowing this. You know, like a, a teenager who's been through this, like an 18 year old or, you know, somebody's parent who can relate to some personal experience or a health expert. I kind of don't think it's going to be as impactful if it's you know mrs jones from down the corridor who normally teaches me algebra who's 56 <laughs> and do you know you know it needs there needs to be kind of some buy-in on the part of the pupils they don't want to feel they're being lectured because mm -hmm. as, a, as a primary school teacher I, I don't feel children see you as a lecturer they see you almost as a surrogate surrogate parent in a lot mm -hmm. of cases or an extension of their family in in some ways mm -hmm. but as a secondary school pupil you know that that relationship changes it's not so much that kind of um that pastoral kind of you know we're a big family and my teacher looks out for every aspect of my well-being in the same way because it just can't work that way um just you know by definition of the way that secondary schools are organized moving around from one teacher to another you don't have that same level of familiarity you mm -hmm. don't have somebody who knows you as inside out as your primary teacher does so i kind of feel like you need somebody who's in who the children can buy into who'd be invested into and the person that they see two hours a week to teach them geometry or whatever or even if it's their form teacher who they see every day but for 40 minutes it's just not quite the same in terms of its impact how do you think there needs to be some some well it needs to be looked into really i think yeah. some need... sort of specialist i guess that's i guess i think like, so i guess like in in south africa we used to have um I don't know if, if schools have this in the UK, but we used to have a guidance counselor. So we used to have a guidance counselor for the primary school and a guidance counselor for the high school. And everyone would be familiar with him and they would know him and he would always be there. So if they had something similar as a sex ed educator who's just always mm. there and the people are familiar with, maybe that would be a better direction to move in. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the missing part. I think the content and the um, political will is there. I think the implementation part is the bit where schools are given not enough explicit guidance about what it should be like, what they have to do. I think it, it's okay to say you must teach these things before age X, mm -hmm. but that's not necessarily going to be an indicator of the quality or the efficaciousness effectiveness of of those teach taught outcomes it's it's not going to be without a little bit more direct explanation of how who what sorts of qualifications what the training needs to look like is there even going to be some kind of you know nationally recognized training certificate or qualification that can be attained because you certainly wouldn't be able to teach some subjects without that so yeah. I think so why are we also, teaching this without precisely. a qualification yeah and I also think it's unfair to teachers really to have to deliver this content with no training yes that is so uh, true because um I know again going back to when I worked at a school we were constantly going for workshops and for trainings and always like and even now when I work online we're constantly doing teacher training and teacher workshops um, to teach specific things. So yeah, I mean, you can't wing something as important like this. 
no, you can't. And it's fine to have a, a document that tells you what the content of your lessons essentially needs to be. But really, when it's something as sensitive as sexual relationships and, you know, personal relationships and healthy relationships, you need to have had some specific training, I feel. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who could do a fantastic job of it with absolutely no training. But, you know, picture that 21-year-old who's just qualified and left university and has never even stood in front of a class before. And, oh, on Wednesday, you've got to teach relationships and sex education to these 10-year-olds. Yeah, and I mean, on the... In place. I mean, on the flip side of that, it would be the 60-year-old teacher, the 56-year-old teacher who's been there right. for years and who's Who blushing now has at to the... teach this. Yeah, <laughs> blushing at the thought of teaching this topic. Absolutely. And, so... and I think that's where the, um, the ambition is a bit lacking. Mm. It, it's that element, I think. Because as much as the government and schools might talk about it being a priority, it's kind of not really. Mm. I mean, some schools will treat it as a huge priority because they know what their pupils need and what they need in terms of, you know, education around social issues before they go out into the big wide world. But it's not what schools' performance is largely being judged on. So mm. it's not going to be a priority for school leaders other than ticking the box and making sure it's in place. They're not going to be assiduously going and observing RSE lessons to find out whether or not the kind of the, the model or example you gave was you know, a clear enough example for children to come away having learned a life lesson that will serve them well in the future. They're just going to go, is it on the timetable? Can I see some evidence you did it in your planning tick? Mm. Okay, who cares? And then when it's a maths lesson, they're like, oh, I want to come and see how you're teaching fractions because I need to see if it fits in with, you know, the way we've mapped out this policy or whatever mm. it is they're looking at. So it... Will we be ready for Ofsted when they come? <laughs> I mean, somebody like Ofsted would look to see if you had a policy, but they're probably not going to come with a focus on that because yeah. I mean, not it's really sort of performance is measured. It sort of sounds like it's just a slap on Band-Aid rather than an actual... I don't think the policy itself is. I think it probably went through some kind of a, a body or a committee that mm -hmm. were really serious about making sure outcomes were better and looked into things, you know, made sure the findings were appropriate. They consulted with all the right people. Then it gets to government, government publish it. Government are like, yeah, it's important, but it's not that important. Let's just make mm. sure it's happening and let schools have some freedom to interpret it because it's not the government's priority either. They, mm. they, it's like they see it as important, but not as important as other things. And of course, once you say that, yeah. it's, standards aren't the same. It's like, it's a dry example, but a few years ago, um, science was, they stopped assessing science at the end of primary school they do, we do something called a, a SATS test. So it's like an end of primary school test to see how children's reading, writing, literacy, numeracy skills are. That once incorporated science. Once that was dropped, what do you think happened to the teaching of science and the quality of it? Do you think it improved, stayed the same? Or do you think the amount of science teaching that happened and the quality of outcomes stayed the same or decreased? What would you imagine would happen? totally decrease i would think precisely yeah in a lot of cases <laughs> that's what happened so if there's no measure and i'm not advocating that we do test for this but if there's no measure there's no emphasis on something of course it falls by the wayside comparative mm. to other things that are more highly prioritized so that's one of the issues that's one of the problems i suppose but you could kind of make the argument in any institution really each institution has things that its performance is measured on and you know things that are more important to management from day to day month to month year to year it just depends on the the vagaries of the politics of the school and the nation of the time but there's definitely a need to make sure it's done well and I don't quite know what the answer to that is 
at the moment. Yeah, I was just actually going to throw that at you as what, where do you think we, do you think that we headed in the right direction with, with sexual education? And um, what do you think actually should be done? I think we covered this a little bit <laughs> with what should be done, but are we generally heading in the right direction? I think the bones are there. I think everybody agrees that we need to do more to protect our young people from kind of the almost threats or dangers of being online, the dangers of going out into the wide world, the dangers of going to meet people, the dangers of presenting yourself as a young person, as an older person almost to people and not really understanding what that means, just wanting to be part of something and not knowing that actually, you know, there are other consequences that come from presenting yourself very sexually mm. to, I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, I'm thinking of if you think about what's happened in the past, like if you think about all the Project U-Tree stuff, all those 14, 15-year-old girls kind of presenting themselves as a little bit older to all those male celebrities who probably knew they weren't, you know, mm. of the age of consent. But there's all that whole muddy world. Now, that was that was a small period of a child's lifespan where they could perhaps be in that position. But that's been increased now because of the opportunities they have to make those connections in mm -hmm. a digital world. And I feel like everybody acknowledges that, but we're still kind of scared of pointing it out. That's my real concern with it. I, I think, yes, we've got that kind of, don't let people touch you in the wrong place. We've got that in place. I think that most people are doing that well. We've got a, yes, this is not what a healthy friendship looks like. That person might be a bully. That person, this is what cyberbullying is. Don't allow that. If this happens, tell a parent, you know, be careful of what you're looking at online. If a pop-up flashes up and you don't like what it looks like or how to click on a C-op button to report something that you don't like. But what we don't say is, don't take photographs of yourself pouting with no top on on Instagram or and post them or don't send we don't send sexed type photos to people. And and I know from experience that that kind of thing does begin to happen towards the end of primary school and sometimes younger. And we don't talk about it to everybody. We wait until it's something to respond to. Mm. I kind of feel like as time goes by over the coming four or five or 10 years, we're going to need to be proactively talking about it before it happens to kind of make sure that we are making our most vulnerable children safer than they could be. And of course, there'll be some children that don't listen to it and don't take it on board because, you know, children just like adults are headstrong, willful creatures and they'll make those choices for themselves. But I think we need to find a sensitive way of delivering that message mm -hmm. that, you know, you are essentially presenting yourself almost as an adult, as a child mm -hmm. in this digital world. and. You just have to be so careful about whether or not you're happy with what you're doing, whether you understand what it means, whether or not it's appropriate. Do people even know that you're doing it in many cases? Mm -hmm. They don't. It's a hard conversation, isn't it? It and, is. Yeah. And I mean, when I brought you on here, I was, I didn't even think about that aspect of sexual education because, um, you know, it's not something I had to deal with or even like a big part in my life, like, because I'm not in education, I don't see this happening all the time. So I didn't even think that that was going to be part of the sex ed um, that's happening right now. So I think things moved on just so quickly from, you know, <laughs> from us being at school and having this really poor experience of sex education to all of a sudden, not only if we pass the point where we need to be talking about relationships and recreational sex, really, but moved on to this point where we're thinking about exploitation really and 
I'm not saying there are huge swathes of children who are going to be sexually exploited online, but there are a huge amount of children making themselves vulnerable and allowing mm. themselves to potentially fall into that position without really understanding the consequences of what they're doing. And I think mm. that's that's my worry about the future. That's the part I don't think is is going to be addressed because it's just so uncomfortable to to talk about and it's mm. just so difficult to broach. And but, I think that you're definitely right that we need we need trained specialists to have these conversations. They need, you know, and someone needs to create um, a, a curriculum for these teachers and, you know, put them through a training. And we need specialists to be able to sensitively broach these topics. Yeah, and um, We need parents to kind of have these conversations with their children as well. And we need parents. And this isn't a criticism because each parent has a different, you know, kind of you know, up strategy for bringing up their ch child and view on it. But we need parents to have these conversations and know what their children are doing online. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's always the case with everyone else's kids but mine when it comes to things like this. And we never really, well, I can't speak, I'm not a parent, but I know I was a mm -hmm. child who was one of those children who would have been everyone else's kids but mine. <laughs> Precisely. I mean... <laughs> When I think back to some of the things I did that were kind of like naughty as a child, it would be like watching probably inappropriate television on the television in my bedroom, but keeping it quiet. And when I was supposed to be asleep now, that was if the worst I could watch was a sitcom with some swearing and the, the odd sex scene in that perhaps I shouldn't have been watching, then that was a, a little bit inappropriate. But now imagine, you know, you could be on your tablet computer in your bedroom when you're supposed to be asleep, no parental oversight because they believe you're asleep and... What are you being exposed to maybe that you shouldn't be? Mm. Or what's at your fingertips that you didn't have before? Yeah, I, I've had um, a lot of people growing up, a lot of people walk in on me watching something I was not supposed to be watching. Mm -hmm. And something I'm going to say, something like um, the Playboy uh, Mansion. <laughs> I love that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or um, Wedding Crashes. Um, my yeah. mom walked into me watching Wedding crash Crashes and she was like, we don't watch things like that in this house. I remember she was very awkward about it. And she was, um, I was quite surprised because she didn't like be her usual shout or s I think she was very sh shocked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she didn't like shout at me or scream at me. She was just like very eerily calm and like, we don't watch stuff like that in the house. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but that's the thing. Children are inquisitive, aren't they? And yeah. we encouraging that inquisitive nature in so many areas of teaching. And yet we kind of shut it down mm. when it comes to relationships. Like it, if I think even about a child walks in and says, oh, X is my girlfriend or X is my boyfriend. And it, immediately, even though I feel fairly well equipped to deal with it, I'm thinking, should I acknowledge this? Should I say we don't have girlfriends? Do I say it's inappropriate? Do I tell you mm. you are wrong to have a girlfriend? Do mm. I do I? Do, you know do I tacitly accept that it's okay to have boyfriends and girlfriends age six do you even know what boyfriend or girlfriend means or does it just mean you're like that person so there's a label you can apply to it to make it seem like it's a big deal it's just such a minefield really you know that inquisitive nature of children that we talk about you know like that awe and wonder that wanting to learn more and then they come in and say x is my girlfriend you go no you don't have girlfriend she's six the end end of conversation yeah. end of conversation on. yeah exactly you just know, makes children more inquisitive if you yeah. don't really kind of deal with it and answer it, the questions it's the like, forbidden oh, I'll find fruit. Out for myself then yeah the forbidden fruit theory right it's like mm -hmm. 
exactly. So after this whole conversation with you, Martin, my takeaway from this is we thought we had it bad growing up. It is so much more complicated now. It's so hugely much. more complicated. I would <laughs> not want to gosh. have to grow up again in this current era. I'm, I'm so glad not. I did my growing up in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, I'm, so glad. I'm thinking not. I'm thinking, yeah, it it might have had the lack of conversations back then, but now they need even more conversations than we needed. <laughs> I think there's a little bit of a, a disconnect as well, because, you know, those children that grew up as the Internet became a thing had parents who did not have a high level of understanding of the Internet or a high level of experience of the Internet. I'm hoping as we go through time, the children that are kind of coming through schools now and in the next five to 10 years Mm -hmm. have parents who are far more digitally literate Mm. and experienced with things like social media than perhaps, you know, I'm thinking about the 11 year olds now probably have parents who are like somewhere in the thirties to forties. So they're similar ages to me. So their experience of the internet will come from being mid teens or upwards. So they perhaps won't have that kind of, digital life quite as entrenched as a really young person might Mm -hmm. so I'm hoping that kind of helps in a way that parental understanding of these younger parents as we go through forward in time I'm hoping that's something that means that they're perhaps a bit more aware of what their children are accessing and able to talk to them about it openly from a position of understanding it yeah that that's that's hoping that's the case (laughs) fingers crossed (laughs) fingers crossed because (laughs) they really need to yeah so martin thank you so much for having this conversation is there anything else you wanted to tap touch on or any message you wanted to get out there before we start rounding off i mean there's nothing else i'd want to add but i'd be curious to know if any of your perhaps younger listeners who grew up perhaps a slightly later point than us have any different recollections or experiences of what sex education was at their school like i'd love to hear somebody who's got a really positive story perhaps of a fantastic experience of of that because I, okay. I don't think I don't think I've ever encountered one yeah well let's put it out there to the listeners if anyone out there has had a positive experience with sexual education let us know um dm me send me an email and uh yeah let's start a discussion we'd love to hear from you um I did have one guest who had um very great sexual education yeah. and um yeah so that that's going to be an episode coming out soon um, yeah, so I'd like to end by asking a few um, short fire questions, rapid questions, just to get to know the human behind Martin. Sure. <laughs> and I think I already know the answer to some of these. So the first question is, what food can you not live without? Could I not? Which food could I not live without? I mean, I like a lot of food, Hannah, so it's really difficult to choose one specific one, but I think it would probably be cheese. I knew cheese it. Cheese is my favorite. I knew it. I knew like, you were going to say That's the cheese. one food I could just open the fridge and kind of just take a bite out of. Or, you know, when you open the fridge and you're like, I want something. I don't want to cook anything. What could I have? Ooh, there's some cheese. I'll just cut some off or just bite it. And then cut the teeth marks off afterwards because I feel guilty. (laughs) I need the teeth mark bit. (laughs) Oh, man. I love it. Okay. And the next question is, what do you think is your worst quality? I think my worst quality, not that I only have one bad quality, (laughs) but my worst quality is probably that I think I'm 
it's kind of a good thing as well, but I think I expect too much of myself. So I hold myself to a high standard. And then when at times it's not possible to meet it, I can be really hard on myself about yeah. having not achieved it. And then that kind of leads my kind of general behavior towards other people to deteriorate a little bit because I've gotten into that kind of angry, annoyed, fed up, miserable kind of mindset where I feel like I'm terrible. So everybody else needs to feel terrible as well at times when it's at its its worst. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a negative feedback loop for sure. Um, So yeah, being a bit harsh on myself and being my own worst critic, which I know everybody is, but I think sometimes I take that to extremes. Mm. I forget, you know, I've done things, I've been successful, I've achieved things before. Why? What makes you think you can't do it now? You know, that kind of self-doubt, really. What would you say is your best quality? Hmm, well, that's difficult. I mean, you talked (laughs) about British people being kind of closed. We don't really kind of toot our own horns too much, do we? But Oh, go on. uh, I don't know. I, I like to think that I try to make sure that people aren't offended or upset I like people to come away from interactions with me feeling like we've been equals or you know I've been I've been considerate of their emotions really I'd, I'd like to think that mm. that's kind of a, a good quality I have I think I like to believe I'm good at that now whether or not you've interacted with me and thought no you're not <laughs> but oh trust me I I'd like to think have. I'm considerate of other people I guess is what I'm trying to say yeah I think you've way. always I've never had an encounter with you that was um contrary to that so well there's time yet <laughs> just you wait just you wait till that, well I that mean time I've let myself down and I'm acting out <laughs> well I mean know for me it's like usually when i when i meet someone within the first uh, few encounters with them um before they know me they would usually say something offensive to me because i'm brown skinned and mm-hmm. i've never had that experience with you oh good i'm glad about that. <laughs> and i think that that ship has sailed now we know each other for I think quite so, a while yeah. I hope so, <laughs> so like have I, to tell me yeah no yeah. i mean like like i said it, it would um it, it usually happens in the first few encounters with someone yeah yeah and uh yeah but yeah trust me i think like uh, for me now that we've become so good friends if i'm ever offended by anything you say i would let you know (laughs) excellent (laughs) likewise (laughs) Uh, yes i'd expect that (laughs) amazing well thank you so much martin for joining us um i think you really did enlighten me so much on what's happening today and where we need to be moving and I think this is a conversation that needed to be had. So thank you. I agree. You're welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Refreshingly Human with myself, Hannah Pillow. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, don't forget to share it with a friend you think would enjoy the content as well. You can also leave me a review on iTunes or Podchaser.com. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Refreshingly Human Podcast, Facebook as Refreshingly Human, and LinkedIn as Hannah Pillow. And I'll see you guys on the next episode.